Hi, my name is Isabel and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast brought to you by ESG Book. In this episode, we talk about the connection between sustainability metrics and financial performance. And we have with us Todd Ward from Yale School of Management, and he's notable for applying a scientific and economic lens to corporate sustainability. Hi, Todd. Really nice to have you. Well, thank you. It's good to see you as well. And thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, let's dive right into it. ESG, the term, very loaded for starters. And as you're teaching many MBA students and scientists about ESG, what is your one sentence definition of this term? I always say ESG is not uh, a set of indicators. It is a set of criteria that investors use to make decisions. So one person's ESG might include very, very different topics than another person's ESG. It's really about how you use that information to make decisions as to how you're going to move your money and invest it. And moving that money, moving on to then financial materiality, um, a point you've made often is that companies will voluntarily disclose sustainability metrics if they are shown to drive improved financial performance. So kind of that connection between what investors care about and what they disclose. And that is not just based on consensus opinion, you write, but also really looking at the scientific and economic relationships between financial performance and sustainability. And there's a lot of literature about this, but how do you go about establishing that relationship in almost 2024, 2023? Um, what is your recommended approach? Yeah, we've, we've had this, tr- this problem in ESG where we've got thousands of empirical studies going back to 2015, 2010, even earlier, that show some level of correlation between financial performance and some aspect of ESG performance. So uh, company A in 2019 had improved carbon emissions, reduced their carbon emissions, and lo and behold, we saw their you know, return on assets or their stock price went up over that same time period. We've got a lot of that data showing that correlation. Um, what we're missing is the causal links that explain that relationship across time, across sector, across region, and across context. So we're missing the the bespoke nature of what ESG aspects drive that capital or that financial performance in particular circumstances. And that's where the frustration with ESG comes is I can go to any investor on the planet and I can say in aggregate, at a, at, a, at a macro level, if you ignore ESG factors, you're likely losing money. But when they press me and say, so what should I look for in a company to, to demonstrate and, and drive better financial performance? Our answer as a collective academic unit and a practitioner unit is it depends. And that's just not a sufficient answer. Um, if I said that for any kind of financial data, um, I would, you know, I'd be drummed out of the room. So what we're looking for now and where we have to focus our efforts is on identifying the causal relationship. And the way I, sp- I think of this specifically is the way that that ESG factor is internalized to the company. And I'll give just one example where there's been a great deal of focus in the research. Um, climate change is a risk for every company on earth. No question but some companies are more exposed to it than other companies. Um, And 
one of the internalization factors is whether a company can manage the specific climate risk that it faces better than its competitors. So that might be you know, managing wildfire risk or managing uh, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions or managing their reputation and brand value associated with climate emissions uh, or managing their supply chain to prevent disruptions. Whatever the internalization mechanism is, the reason it will cost them money, if they can manage that better, right, that's the, that's the factor that we would look at as the quality of the management system, then they're going to have a better financial performance in the face of climate, you know, increasing climate uh, and temperature around the world. So it's those it's those internalization factors uh, that that we're looking for, and those will be more indicative of the financial performance uh, for ESG than an aggregate look at does ESG create financial good or bad. Right. So it's also the link between a risk and the management of that risk when it should materialize. Yeah. And, yeah. and specifically, so management is a big one that we're all looking for, the quality of the management approach to a particular risk. But there's also the exposure to that risk. Um, there's the ways in which that risk is internalized. Um, there's the governance structures around that risk. Um, there's the culture of the company as to whether it can handle and be nimble around risks. There's a number of factors um, that, that you might look at uh, to, to, to identify whether an exterior risk will become an internal or accrued cost. Right. And you hinted at this, but I can imagine it's tough to collect a good historical data set on that, especially as the way we measure ESG has changed over the years, the way that companies report ESG metrics has changed over the years. And to what extent do you see that as a problem that historical performance is missing the point when they basically assess sustainability metrics that are forward-looking and assessing some long-term resilience of a company towards ESG risk vis-a-vis historical financial performance of a company? How do you yeah, see that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I think we're, we're, we're stuck in the trap of feasible data as opposed to valuable data. Um, and we all know it and we're all working around it and trying to figure out solutions. But what I mean by that is feasible data is generally what happened yesterday. Um, did we have a fatality yesterday or last year? Did we reduce our emissions over the last 12 months? Um, have we had, you know, how many audits have we done on our supply chain looking for children over the last year? That's all backward looking historic performance data. It is supposed to be indicative of things like management quality or the culture of our organization or the success of our governance structures, et cetera. But it is a proxy for that. Um, it, is, it is indicative only. Now in financial markets, we have um, much more specific ways to analyze the success of those structures. So for example, when we look at the board of directors, trying to assess whether or not this company is going to be financially successful, there's some very specific things we look for. We look for independence around finance, finances and conflicts of interest. We look for expertise and, and past management history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could do the same thing with ESG. We can look at, does your board of directors have experience with assessing climate risk and man- mitigating that risk? But we don't. What we say is, do, does your board of directors have experience in climate writ large? That's not an incredibly useful indicator. So a lot of people, not myself included, were looking at what is the nature of the risk? How is it going to cost us money or how are we going to make money out of it? Now I can look at the specific structures and assess whether that company is ready um, or successful 
at mitigating that risk. Um, so it's, it's not that the historical performance data is useless, because, but it's just a proxy. It's just an indicator of what we really want to know. And it's not impossible to get much, much more interesting information. Um, we just have to dig deeper. We have to look at larger data sets. And we have to have a much firmer concept of which of these, stru which of these structures are actually going to be successful in mitigating those risks. And it's interesting that you mention a larger data set because I can imagine elements of what you just described is almost fundamental research really going into the biographies and the occasional backgrounds of the board of directors. Yeah, so so one of our research streams right now is um, like like many others is we're using artificial intelligence and machine learning to scrape documents. And what we're looking for is not just historic performance markers. We're looking at markers of for example, management quality. Um, and within that, when we can find those indicators of management quality, we then can try to correlate them to specific risks, to specific internalizations. Um, but it, what it requires is vast amounts of, you know, of document scraping, of finding those quality indicators, uh, and then looking for the proximity in the disclosure, looking for the sentiment analysis in video or audio files, some way to try and pinpoint those indicators to the same place where the company talks about the risks that we're interested in. Yeah, more data is good. I can subscribe to that often. But I want to switch gears on sustainable finance instruments. So basically it's on the other side. So packaging certain financial data into a product or even creating a product that is based on certain KPIs. Um, let's say it can be obviously sustainability link loans or green bonds. Um, they have been around for a while. What do you think is the effectiveness of these instruments in driving corporate sustainability? The, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, these, uh, of these novel finance mechanisms or these novel investment tools um, and products, um, but perhaps for a different reason than other people. So, there's no question that they create beneficial impact. Like if you do a, a, a development loan where you've got 10% is, is underwritten with concessional capital, 90% is coming from the markets. So you're scaling up impact. There's no question. Um, supply chain link loans. I think there's no question that those are driving beneficial impact as well. Obviously there's context around those impacts to be assessed. Um, but overall, I think they're, they're doing a good job. They are inherently limited. And, and the reason I say inherently is because all of these, all of these examples that we can think of—supply chain loans, green bonds, um, uh, uh, leveraged capital, blended finance mechanisms, etc.—they all have either some element of concessional capital in there, meaning that some investor has to say, "I will take a loss" or "I will take a hit against market return." in order to leverage everyone else coming in, to de-risk it for somebody else. That inherently limits the amount of capital that you can have uh, going into these investment products. And or there's some additional cost associated with it. It might be a very minor cost, but it is additional and the market doesn't like those. For example, the, you know, the cost of labeling a green bond doesn't necessarily get you a benefit on the green bond. It's, you know, it's more of a reputational thing. Um, the, um, and so, but you're paying, you know, roughly say $10,000 per million dollar issuance of a green bond. So there's a cost above and beyond what the market would normally see. So that is, that inherently constrains these instruments in terms of scale. Um, 
So that, so while I think the benefit is huge, the real benefit that I see, the one that I'm most interested in is the data that they are collecting through those instruments. And so what I, one of my hypotheses is that, for example, in debt markets, uh, the amount of interest that we would charge to a small or medium enterprise in the global south, it's exceptionally high. Like in Zimbabwe, it's like 80% interest rate on a, on a normal bank loan to a small or medium enterprise. It's a huge interest burden on that, on that business. And the reason is because we think that the risk of default is really, really high. But these, these blended finance loans, these novel investment products, they're producing data that shows that by investing in those businesses, you're creating resilience, social resilience, climate resilience, environmental resilience, et cetera. So those businesses are actually becoming less likely to default on their debt. And so the, the price on the debt is artificially high, but we, don't, we haven't had the data in the past to show that. We've been using actuarial data that looks in the, you know, into the past that says those, those, those debts are really, they're, they're really risky. But it turns out, or it, it appears to turn out, we're still working on this, um, that they're, artific- the, they're mispriced in the market. Um, so the real value of these, these investment mechanisms uh, and these investment tools is to show the data that that is occurring so that we can then reprice into traditional markets um, and get these, you know, that that debt product out at a lower rate. Um, I think that's where the real value of these these products is going to come. That is it. That is exciting. And is it then where, where does the mispricing currently lie? Is it that there is a misconceived concept of risk when it comes to those kind of investments, or is it also basically the lack of data and a data practice around those products that basically also makes it quite obscure and therefore risky? perceived investment so it's it's still a hypothesis we have we have uh anecdote not anecdote we have one-off data sets that show this but what what's happening what appears to be happening if we can prove it at scale is that the actuarial data on the default rate for example on that loan is based on a non-resilient society um so it's based on a community of of you know, employers and businesses and infrastructure, financial infrastructure, energy infrastructure, logistics infrastructure, et cetera, is based on the, a reality from last year, the last five, 10 years, where these people, these businesses were operating in a very, very high risk arena. But as capital flows into those arenas, those investors, those, those businesses build the infrastructure you know, the capacity, the innovation, the technology, the logistics, the financial infrastructure, et cetera, to actually create greater resilience. So looking forward, the default rate will be lower than what we think. And in the global South, there's a much greater investment in resilience than when you compare it to investment in the global North, where it's just, that would be a very marginal transactional increase. Um, this is a hypothesis. So the hypothesis is it's mispriced because of the nature of resilience on the default rate, particularly social and climate resilience. Like I said, we've got kind of one-off data sets. Um, what we're looking for now is to show consistency across data sets uh, that this is, this, is, this is happening. I'm hopeful. It's a good hypothesis. Um, we'll see if it pans out. <laughs> right, a lot of changes in those countries as well, socially, politically, that, that you have to prize in, especially when you look at long-term yeah, long-term investments in that regard. Um, 
thinking about disclosure more, you mentioned some of the emerging markets. Um, there has been an uptick, right, around disclosure standardization, and that's now on our way for a few years. Looking at what companies tell investors around sustainability, um, what are the three main points of improvement that companies can make when they communicate around their sustainability? Um, well, there's some improvements that are mandated, as you kind of hinted at. <laughs> so those will be happening. So one, of course, is the um, is the mandate coming out of the European Union and then elsewhere around the world to start to assess the financial impact of your ESG presence, as it were, the, your ESG performance. Um, so we've, you know, we've had the TCFD for a number of years now, since 2017. So we're working on the financial impact of climate uh, risk. Um, there's now the TNFD. There's a lot of effort to translate our our ESG performance in the context of the risk, climate risk, biodiversity risk, et cetera, to arrive at an assessment of financial materiality. So I think that's that's a huge step. Um, we're all working on it. We're all trying to sort that out. Um, hopefully the accountants, you know, will save the world here in some way, shape or form uh, as they as, as they kind of standardize these analyses. That's that's the big one. It's no secret, but that's that's probably the obvious, you know, the most obvious uh, improvement that needs to be made. Um, the, probably the, the, I guess the second one that we're seeing is that there's, there has to be an evolution of the way that we think about materiality in these, in reporting. So we've always used materiality in reporting to identify what are the most significant topics. Um, and we've done it in a variety of ways. It could be stakeholder materiality where we say it's important to the business, it's important to stakeholders. And we do this kind of matrix um, we're now doing double materiality per the EU guidelines, um, where we look at important to the business, you know, how it impacts the business versus how it impacts society and the environment outside of the business. There's a variety of ways that we think of materiality. Um, there's also kind of scenario analysis and context, which is I can't understand materiality unless I have a projection of what I think the future might look like, um, and therefore what the risk might look like to my business going forward. We're going to need to to apply these lessons of materiality. You know, there's, there's several different forms of it out there. Um, and we're going to need to integrate that with the way that we've always assessed material risks in the business. So I think there's a great deal of, of context building uh, with enterprise risk management teams within companies to integrate ESG factors into the way that they do financial and extra financial risk assessment uh, in the future. Um, and it's going to touch on all these different types of criteria that we've used for, for materiality assessment. So that's probably the second big one. Again, not a new concept. Lots of people understand this. Um, but the, this integration and standardization of materiality is, is, uh, is going to be a big movement in, in reporting. Um, the third prior type of reporting is I think there will be a bifurcation between standardized reporting and risk reporting. So standardized reporting refers to any investor that's kind of invested across the portfolio, or across the economy. They're more interested in the covariance of risk across their portfolio than in any particular idiosyncratic risk. So they want everyone to report the same thing in the same way so they can see if you know water constraints are going to impact one company versus another company, if everyone's going to go up or down. It's the covariance, the beta that they're interested in and volatility. 
and that that will be codified, standardized, regulated, um, because that's the push is codification, standardization, regulation. But then there's going to be the risk data, which is going to be messy, dirty, um, and most importantly, unpriced information. And so I think companies will have to start thinking about this in terms of their reporting. There will be some part of the report that will be standardized and regulated. There's going to be a whole other part of the report that is speaking to the idiosyncratic investor that's trying to find unpriced information, unpriced risk and opportunity, um, which is by definition not standardized, regulated, or consistent. Um, so I think that's a new, a new, kind of another way that's coming with reporting is, is understanding that difference. And I can imagine with the latter, it's very delicate because you don't want to promise too much. You don't want to raise too many concerns by mentioning a ton of risks. So it's a very fine balance that companies have to walk there. Um, and it links to some extent to your earlier point around the changing of resiliency of specific regions in the world and how that might change the cost of capital. Um, yeah, like very important than how companies communicate on on those factors that might affect the cost of capital yeah it's it's very much an art not a science but yeah. i have i have a lot of faith in companies ability because marketing has always been an art <laughs> not a science how much you know can you say how much should you say how much is too much when do you get called out for you know stretching the truth that's always been an evolving landscape of litigation liability customer preferences in this case, it'll be investor preferences as well. So there will always be an equilibrium um, and, and it is by definition not standardized. So it'll, it'll continue to be that way. Right. Uh, to close this off, I'm very curious, what are your current research focus as you, um, as you close off the year? So I mentioned too, uh, we're looking at the, the data scraping technology to try and find those causal pathways. The second I also mentioned, which is this hypothesis around uh, climate and social resilience building and the mispricing of debt. The third one, which I'm perhaps most excited by, is uh, is the assessment of fiduciary duty. Um, the Again, the hypothesis is that a, any given asset manager has different expectations of fiduciary duty. So an institutional asset manager for a large pension fund has very different fiduciary duty expectations and say the chief financial officer of a, a global 100 company. Um, and that, that fiduciary duty is defined by a variety of different factors, whether it's legal precedent or regulation uh, or the specific shareholders that they have and the pressures that those shareholders put on them. Um, there's also, they're also kind of pressured by myths in the, in the financial world about what is their role as a fiduciary duty and what, what has become kind of um, you know, a, a story that is held by the market as opposed to the truth um, of, of, those, of those regulations and that liability. So everyone's got this different nature of fiduciary duty. And what I'm looking at or what, I'd like, what I'm trying to look at is, is there a correlation between the flexibility that is perceived in their fiduciary duty of a fiduciary to their discount rate and their ability to invest around climate and other ESG factors. And the hypothesis is pretty obvious that if you have more flexibility as a fiduciary based on all those factors, that you probably can take on greater risk in terms of investing in climate or ESG factors. Um, but I wanna test that out. I wanna try and measure 
the flexibility of the fiduciary expectations, and then compare that to the investment practices of those different asset managers in reality. Um, so that one I'm, I'm quite interested in because I think we can, if we can show the correlation, then we can start to highlight those myths around fiduciary duty and say, that is not something that you actually have to be concerned with. You have more flexibility than you think. Um, and therefore you can take on these, uh, these investments that the rest of the world knows that we need to do. <laughs> Very interesting. Oh yeah, keep us uh, keep us in a loop. This concludes this episode. Thank you so much, Todd. Um, thank you for listening, and until the next time. Thank you.